0: Artsville, Artsville, a happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Greetings and salutations, our friends and neighbors. This is Scott Sourdough-Power, your host at Artsville Podcast, where we celebrate American Contemporary Arts and Crafts from Asheville and beyond. At Artsville Podcast is the place where you will learn how Asheville became Artsville. And I am joined with my dear colleagues today, Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton. Hey, guys. Hey, Scott. How are you? Oh, it's I'm great. I'm great. I'm just happy to be here with you guys playing podcast.
1: We're getting used to this now, Scott.
0: We're like veterans now. We're seasoned vets, as they say.
1: Get there. getting there. Not like you, but we're getting there.
0: <laughs> one episode at a time. I love it. I love it. And today's episode is fantastic because we have a live one today. We have a firecracker today. The one and only Viola Spells. I mean, I love talking to Viola. She was such a ball of energy.
1: She is just a wonderful woman and we have known Viola since almost as we began as Sand Hill artists two years ago and she made such a hit on our virtual gallery tours that are still on YouTube that I thought when we started these podcasts, Viola was eight of the one on our list. She is just wonderful. Yeah, she is delightful. And her jewelry is unbelievably gorgeous.
0: Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I mean, you said it first and you beat me to it because it is one of those things that you look at and you actually think if you, if you didn't know who made it, you would you would think like, oh, this jewelry is being designed by some hip New York designer out of uh I don't know fashion institute or something you know like I I don't know then you find out that Viola is the artist behind making these and it's just such a, a delightful surprise because of course her art exudes such a youthful energy and yet she's not a spring chicken either
1: <laughs> yeah. Well you know this is her second career the other thing about Viola is that she is something that you rarely find here, which is that she was born and bred in Asheville. And she learned to crochet wire and of course fiber from her mother and her grandmother. And her relationship with her family is all interwoven in her designs. And so she went to art school after a full life as a librarian And took what she knew from childhood and brought it into this contemporary design and style that is just so beautiful.
0: It's so true. And she is such an inspiration because she really is a real-life case study for reinvention, for having a life and then changing that life and going back to your roots maybe. And bringing that sense of curiosity and joy to life, in this case through her art. It's such an inspiring story.
1: And she's in the River Arts District right around the corner from Artsville.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. And now, is her work going to be on exhibit in Artsville space in Marquis soon?
1: She's a smart businesswoman, that, Viola. She already has space in Marquis.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: So they have right Up at the very front, they've put all of their jewelry designers in one case where they can be actually very carefully watched. So she is already there, and it's great exposure. And then if they want more, they could go around the corner to Pink Dog and meet her personally. She works in her studio at Pink Dog all the time she likes to talk to people as she did to (laughs) us
0: oh my god boy she she loves to talk and as a podcast guest that's what you want right because you just want people to share and be open and be articulate and boy was she full of stories and full of joy and energy and so for me it was a pleasure uh, and a delight to chat with her so let's not belabor the point right let's get into this episode right and hear from the one and only viola spells
1: Thanks. we're ready. ready
0: All right, here we go. Viola Spells, welcome to Artsville.
2: Hello, everybody.
0: (laughs) Wow, this is fantastic to have you here today. I'm so grateful for you taking time out of your busy practice to come and talk about your work. Thank you for coming.
2: I'm looking forward to telling everybody about my work.
0: What do you want them to know about your work?
2: I think it's going to be a fun experience.
0: (laughs) It is going to be a fun experience and fun for me anyway. But let's jump right in. I mean, what is it about your work that you want people to know?
2: Well, number one, that it's sculptural. It's very light. People look at it and might think it's heavy until they touch it and feel it. And that it's textured. It's very tactile. And I want them to know that I started doing the crochet wire. My grandmother crocheted, my mother crocheted. And it was something that I started as a Girl Scout, trying to earn badges, you know, the homemaker badge. So I had to learn knitting and crochet. So I was all about getting these badges together. So I really first learned how to crochet then.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you grew up watching your mother and your grandmother crochet.
2: Oh, yes. The house was full of doilies, probably like everybody else's house, on the couch, you know, and on the chairs. and. I didn't really have an appreciation for it then because my brother and I used to use them as like spaceships. We would be, they would be all starched and formed and we would be pitching them around the room <laughs> <That's> <laughs> when my mother wasn't looking. And then we would nicely put them back in place, you know, when <laughs> I first come home from work. <laughs> and then my grandmother did all the art. She was a quilter. She did everything. She put away food. She lived in Kentucky on a big farm. That was my father's mother. And she did everything.
0: So I'm guessing that, well, if they're on a farm, they're growing food and crops and canning and, and, and yes, obviously- she did you know, all the canning
2: the down in the cellar. Yeah. All of that. Yes. They had hogs. They would kill the hogs and they used everything. She had a smokehouse where she had country ham and- Everything was hanging up. you know, it was all new to me when we first went. What is that? That comes to thinking, well,, what, is this really a working farm? Yes, it's a working farm. It looked a little tired to me as a five-year-old. But I spent all my summers there with all my cousins. We would walk around barefoot, having fun. And my grandfather, there was five sisters. And when they got married, each one was given a home, and was spread around. All of my cousins, our day was consisted of going from home to house, to house to house to house to visit everybody.
0: What a great so way how to we grow up! Our summers, and that was in Kentucky.
2: It's in Kentucky, a little tiny place called Barbersville.
0: But you grew up in Asheville, correct?
2: I grew up here in Asheville.
0: Fantastic. So you would spend the summers in Kentucky or did you just go and visit at various times? Like, how did that work?
2: No, I would go every summer when I was s- small. We, my brother and I, we would go up and spend summers there. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother would have all these arts and crafts projects that the cousins would do. The other cousins would ask her, well, when are we going to do so-and-so? We want to make this. No, you have to wait till violin bill come." Nobody could do anything unless they were all there together. She didn't favor one over the other. She was a hearty woman. She ran the churches. She had her own country store. She was a little short something, like 4'11". And she got around. She had a lot of energy.
0: Well, I'm starting to understand where you get your energy from.
2: (laughs) Yeah, from my grandmother and my mother. My mother had a lot of energy, too.
0: I love it. So if your experience uh, visiting in the summers uh, there in Kentucky was perhaps more rural and more agricultural or what have you, what was growing up in Asheville like back in those days?
2: Well, when we grew up in Asheville, it was very close-knit community. Everybody pretty much knew everybody. If you didn't know them, you could ask a friend or another family, do you know so-and-so, so-and-so, especially when we started growing up and had little boyfriends and stuff. Well, you couldn't see that person unless your mother and your father knew all about his family. So they would be asking the friends and relatives, who's so-and-so and and who are their people? You had to know the people. So the black community was very close. And as a kid, we didn't really enter into the outer world. We was very close-knit. We mostly only saw black people. And we would hear my parents talking about, white people i didn't know what they were talking about these white people and then there was this these goats up the street from me i grew up on bartlett street and this minister of the church there on the corner of french broad and bartlett he had goats in the back my brother discovered them, and he told my brother he could come up anytime. time so i said well you know this is interesting we let everybody all our friends know I thought about charging money, but I was just too excited just to have different people come around. And then there was this young boy who came up and he won. He said, I heard y'all had goats. I want to see them. So I said, okay. So I took him up. Meanwhile, my mother had already told us we couldn't go up there anymore. And I wanted to know why, why can't we go up? She was busting up my fun routine. So this young boy came up and he telling me how he got around, he was probably maybe like eight or nine, where we were like five or six, and how he did golf clubs, you know, he caddied, and he was, I thought he was a little young to be caddying, but he was like a little hustler. So I started asking him, I said, well, I keep hearing these adults talking about white people. Who are they? <laughs> well, we didn't know anything about all of that, because they kept us close. So he told me who white people were and that he cared for white people. So that's how we found out what was going on in in the outer world, in the community, because we didn't get to see, we were shielded. We didn't get to see all of those things.
0: How did he describe white people to you? Do you remember?
2: Yes. I was trying to be nice. You said be nice. (laughs) I want to hear it. This is the good stuff. He said, you really have to be cautious. You have to be careful. Even the nice ones, he said, you have to be careful because they'll turn on you too. So be careful. Mm, and mm. after that, after I heard all about white people, I didn't really want to know anymore about about white people. I was very happy to stay sheltered. Sure. And there was different periods of growing up in Asher when you would venture out and you would do things in the community, but when something negative happened, and I then want to stay home and not go out. It seemed like my mother would have a sixth sense about that, and she would do something positive to bring us out and to shelter us, but to show us that we could survive and still get along in the outer world, even though there were things that were not as nice to us, for us. And she would help booster our spirits, even though I would never tell her, but she had a sixth sense about that.
0: Viola, what years are we talking about right now?
2: You're talking about the early 50s, 50s, 60s, going into the 60s. I'm a 50 and 60 girl. In the ninth grade, I became part of what we call in Asheville called the A-Score, which was the Asheville Student Committee on Racial Equality. In most other communities, it was the college students who helped to integrate the community. But we didn't have a college here in Asheville. So it was the high school students who did it, who started it all.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: And Mr. Rowland, who owned a jewelry store, we would have meetings in the back of his store about doing the marches and the sit-ins and how to conduct ourselves and things like that. And even then, I love to read. And I will always go to the library on Saturday. And so, because I was interested in books and libraries, I was on the library committee. And that committee helped to integrate the library here in Asheville.
0: Amazing. Well, that is the beginning of a part of the story that I also wanted to get to, which is how did you become a librarian? Because, I mean, what I love about your story, Viola, is that you have had multiple lives, uh, it seems. <laughs> yeah, it and you, <laughs> yeah, and, and layers and layers and layers, right? And that's the beautiful uh, human experience. And so you're growing up in Asheville. How the heck did you end up in Philly working as a librarian? What was that journey like?
2: Well, first I started out after I finished North Carolina Central in Durham, and I had minored in library science. Well, I didn't do student teaching, so in order to get a job after I graduated, you had to work what they call a practicum, so I got a, like a B practicum. And so I started as a school librarian in High Point, And from there, I got my master's from Michigan. And then I went to New York Public Library, where I love books. And because I couldn't go to the Central Children's Department, I wanted to be, help children learn about books and introduce books to children. And so I became a children's librarian, started out at New York Public. And then after eight years, then I went to Philadelphia.
0: So what was that like? I mean, going from a, excuse the phrase, but I mean, you're a little girl from a little town in Asheville, North Carolina, and then you're going to the big city. I mean, what was that? That must have been a huge culture shock for you.
2: It was a huge culture shock because that's what I really wanted to do because I didn't have that big city experience. And so I wanted to go to a big city. And when I finished grad school, they had all these people to come from the various library systems. To interview us. And so I then decided, well, you know, it's nice to hear them, but what is this place like? We're not gonna really like living there. So I went on an interview to Cleveland Public Library, the Free Library of Philadelphia, and the New York Public. And I had an aunt who lived in Philadelphia and I stayed with her. And she went on the interviews with me, which I really didn't like because I wanted to be like a grown-up, go on my own interview by myself, but she insisted, and I didn't really want to hurt her feelings because she was my mother's favorite aunt, and I grew up hearing my mother talk about her all the time. She used to live in New York first. She would go visit her as a child in New York, what fun they had, so I couldn't tell my aunt I didn't want her around, <laughs> so she went with me to my interview in the Free Library and the way she took me down into the city and I actually saw how people lived, especially Black people that lived in those poor areas and people clumped up with each other in those big apartment buildings. I mean, I wasn't used to that. And so at first, I really wanted to start working for the Free Library because really, they offered more money, but I didn't think I would like the city And then when she took me, she actually wanted to go to my interview in New York. And so she took me to New York. I guess she didn't want anything to happen to me. She wanted to make sure I got there okay. And I wanted to actually see a branch. So they wanted me to go to the library in the Chinese area in New York. So she went with me down there because I wanted to see a branch in action and up close. So then I decided once I saw New York, it was exciting. You know, we came in on the train and things I had never seen, a uh, Macy's downtown. And then they had that little coffee shop. I forgot the little name of where you would go in. And my mother used to talk about when she first went to Chicago, how they had these little places where they went in to lunch and you, they had like the little, I forgot the name she used. They had an automated, but anyway, reminded me of that. So I decided, oh, I want to go to New York. And I had an aunt, that was a best friend with my grandmother, even though I didn't know my grandmother. She died when my mother was young. I got a chance to stay and live with her. She had this big brownstone in New York where St. Nicholas and Amsterdam crisscross right around the corner from the Jamil Mansion. I love that. And so that's how I got introduced to being a librarian in the big city.
0: Now, are you crocheting and making art during this whole time?
2: No. But somehow I knew I wanted to be an artist. I like artists, but I love books and all of that, too. But I really didn't know how to go about. Even when I was in grad school to be a librarian, I had that art thing bugging at me. You know, I would shop around and I went to school in Ann Arbor for library science. And I would shop around in there and I would see all these little pins and brooches. And I said, well, I, could just, I would love to do this. Sit in a corner. And just make art. But I didn't have a clue about how did you go all about learning it. So I said, well, I love library. I love books. I'll stick with this. And maybe something, even with Mr. Rowland, he was a jeweler. And he would have the advice on when we would go in for A-score meetings. But I didn't really want to do what he did because I thought it was too commercial. He was selling white people's art. And I didn't really want to do that, you know. I didn't really have an idea exactly what it was, but I knew it wasn't that. So, I, you know, I didn't think about it anymore. So, I, you know, did the library thing. I really, really love being a librarian. I really love working with kids and coming up with creative ideas to introduce them to the libraries and books. And one time I was in a small library. And we would just make stuff there. We did T-shirts. We printed stuff. And so my daughter, she went to a private school in the Bryn Mawr area in Philly, and they had a very strong arts program. And one day for parent day, I went in, you know, it was Thursday or something, and that was the day she had jewelry. I knew she was taking jewelry. And when it came time to go to the studio where she was taking jewelry, gosh, it was like trumpets started playing. I said, God, this is it. This is what I want to do. I was just mesmerized. You know, you used to hear about ministers who would hear the call of God. I thought that was baloney, no (laughs) such thing. But I actually experienced that. I just knew it was just just gut-wrenching. I was a very good parent. But I hate to say that day, I forgot all about parent (laughs) day.
1: I was sitting there
2: (laughs) asking the jury teacher All about the jewelry and how you make it and what she teach me. I guess she said no. She was very (laughs) clear. So I thought, well, I got to learn this. How am I going to learn this? I figured then I read up about the University of the Arts had continuing ed programs. because you know, I always like a lot of different things. So I said, well, you don't even know. You think you want to do all that, but you don't really know if you're really going to do it. You need to go and find out. So I took a continuing ed program at University of the Arts. That was the first one. And I really, really loved it. But it was just too much. And a teenage daughter, I had a demanding job. I was in charge of a large library with 70 staff people. I said, you know, this have to wait till I retire. I don't think I can take another thing on. So meanwhile, I did take another continuing ed class at Temple's school, I forgot the name of it. Oh, it come to me in a minute. I liked it better because it was on the edge, on the northern part of the city, and it had parking space. That down into the city, trying to find a parking space, rushing to class, that was a bit much. So I did take that at Temple. I loved it too. And then they discontinued. I was so upset. I was already with the people. How can you discontinue the class? People love this," she said. "Listen, lady, (laughs) the grad students manage this program, and they don't want to do it right now. So, what could I do? So, I had to wait. I planned, and then I waited till I moved back to Asheville, and I found a graduate program at East Tennessee State. I went over there. I finished the program, then I got my jewelry going, and I love it every day and ever since I finished. So that's how I got into it.
0: Well, that is such an inspiring story, and, it, and I hope people listening, I hope it inspires them because what you're teaching us is that never stop learning. You can have multiple callings in life. I'm guessing that you were a damn good librarian.
2: Oh, yeah. I put my all into it.
0: Yeah. Right, and now you're a damn good artist, (laughs) and you're uh, jewelry. By the way, I don't think we've actually spoken about your art specifically because we've talked about it being sculpture, and we talked about your sort of roots in crochet, what have you. But your medium is jewelry. You make wearable art.
2: I decided on crochet wire because after I finished, and I was sitting down and trying to get started. What was going to be my medium? Because I could hammer, I could form, I could fabricate. But it was something my sculptor, sculpture teacher said in class that kind of hooked me. One of the first days in sculpture class. She said, you know, when you can put dashes, your eye fills in those dashes and it becomes whole. So I became interested in the concept of line. And how I could weave it, and then a person would see it as whole, as volume. So I could take a little material and make it look big, and it would still be light. That's what I loved about it. And I could do all sorts of things with the wire to make people see it as a solid, a solid form. And so that's when I decided I would do crochet. At first, I had to decide whether I was going to knit it or was I going to crochet it. Even though knitting, I knew how to knit better than I knew how to crochet.
0: So explain the difference, though, of Viola. Explain the difference for people who may not understand.
2: Basically, a lot of the stitches are the same. But with knitting, you use two tools. But with crochet, you only have one tool. And I thought, you know, that would be better. I would have to fumble around. I can just crochet with it. But then I, I realized I hadn't done it since I was a kid, pretty much. I did knit some things as an adult, but I didn't crochet that much. So I just had to practice. I practiced a lot before I even made anything just to get the weave right, just to get the gauge right, so it wouldn't be looking wonky. I mean, I took workshops from Arlene Fish, who wrote the book Textiles and Metal. And I came home, I was really depressed because my stuff was looking wonky. She bragged on my crochet parts of the different things she had done. But when I went to do the second part of the crochet, it was looking a little wonky. So I said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. But I didn't despair. I just got busy, just kept practicing, just kept practicing until I got it the way I thought it should look. And then I started making bracelets. That's what I started out doing. And they had a studio stroll, and I made all these bracelets. And I sold them really cheap. I made really these thick, wide bracelets. And I sold it for 20 bucks. And a girl had been a friend of my daughter who had been really nice to her, came by the studio. And so I said, you know, you've been so nice to my daughter. I'm going to give you a bracelet. Just pick out any one of these bracelets you want. And she did, and I gave it to her. She walked around Studio Stroll, and everybody saw her bracelet and wanted to know where she got it from. And I had many sales that day, and it pays to be nice to people. Pays to be nice to people. You don't know where, how it's going to turn out, what's going to And she brought me many sales that day by walking around the different studios with my bracelet.
0: So what do those same bracelets sell for today?
2: The same braces sell today a hundred bucks at least. There
0: you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, That's of one the of the real, lessons, right? Some of the real tiny ones, the two rolls sell for fifty. I sell those for fifty.
0: Right, right. Well, what, part of what I love about your work is that it is well. It's so sculptural, but it in it to your point, right? It looks solid, but it's not. And it looks heavy, but it's not. But yet, it probably looks delicate, but it's not. Right. So. Talk about the materials and talk about what inspires you. I mean, and your process. I'm sort of jumping around a little bit here, but let, let's start with your process. Are you sketching first and then beginning to build? How do your ideas come to life?
2: Well, I think when I first started doing it, I had in mind. I don't think I sketched first. I just started making them. But as time went on, I mean, I do both. I sketch and I also just inspired. To move it's something. Maybe it's just in my head, or I saw a silhouette of something that interested me. So I just decided I'll just do it like that. Inspirational making. Mm-hmm. But then, if somebody sees something and they want something like it, then I have to sit down and sketch it out. I have to count the number of stitches so they all come out looking the same way. 'Cause people see it they want it to look exactly like that. And I may have done the piece inspirationally. Right. But now I've got to go back and actually count out stitches and set up. You're write like, oh man, what down.
0: did I do? <laughs> go back and reverse so engineer. Yeah.
2: I said, like, how did I do that? Yeah. How did I do that? So each piece will look that way. But more and more I'm beginning to sketch. More and more my pieces are mostly sketched out. Mm-hmm.
0: And then what about your color palette? I mean, do you seem to go back to sort of a, a similar palette or are you just inspired? you keep create ranges? I mean, I, how, talk about how you think about developing new products.
2: I personally like the blacks, the grays, the whites. I like that palette. I love red. Red is one of my favorite colors. Since I was a little girl, red was my color. But a lot of people don't like red. It's too bold for them. You have to have a really outgoing and strong personality to carry red or really like red. Most people, they don't want to be seen. So they like retiring pieces, you know, simple pieces. But people who are out and about and working and doing things, They like those artistic pieces, those statement pieces. So I have some that are just regular, simple. I call them my introduction pieces, where there may be just two rows with some crystals. And they love that. They love the beads in it and the gemstones I try to make with gemstones. And I just keep it simple. Pieces like that, people do love. And because I didn't have an idea about art, I really take an interest in teaching kids how to make art, how to make wire jewelry, how simple it can be. You can just take some wire and have some nails in a board and just string it around and just keep doing that and connect them with jump rings. And you can have a bracelet. You can have a necklace. So I teach after school kids how to make jewelry. We do wire jewelry, and then that can, believe it or not, something very simple is just doing a simple design with a piece of wire can be hard, kids see it can be hard to them. So then I might take some copper shapes and they can use nail polish and put on the full, the copper shapes. And a lot of kids have, you'd be surprised how good ideas they have in terms of color and putting color down. We use Prismacolor pencils because, you know, they don't have all that, those fumes and gases to make them kids sick that, you know, it's clean fun.
0: So we spoke earlier about your energy level. And as I was reading up in terms of preparing for our chat today, I read somewhere that you like to work at night. You're like a vampire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you sleep at all? I mean, how... Uh, oh, yeah. how- yeah, okay. Oh, the okay. body
2: will make you sleep.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, it will. Yes, it will yeah, tell you, can, you when you, you need to get to rest. You
2: go if you want to, but it'll make you lay down. So. Yeah. I like to get up late at night because yeah. I usually go to bed early and get up late, like 12, 1 o'clock, and work mm. through the night because everybody else in my family is asleep and not up to bug me and ask me for this or that. And I can concentrate better.
0: Mm-hmm. And then do you do that a couple nights a week, or, or how often do you work through the night?
2: I Almost every night. I try to do something on my art every day. Every day. Every day. Because I try to develop a strong work ethic when it comes to working. Because you never know when opportunities come. And when they come, I want to be ready. Because when they come, I get excited. And I get all flustered. And if I don't have it together, I'm a Sebastian case. So if I already have a lot of work already laid out and planned, I don't have to go jump through hoops and get myself all upset. I have a lot of stuff that I can draw on a pull from.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, tell us about the Chit Chat Fashion Show.
2: Oh, the Chit Chat Fashion Show. I wanted to be a part of some of the events that people were having, and I kept finding I, I couldn't get into them. They wouldn't let me in, or if I did get in, I would have difficulty interacting, especially if maybe it was a young person. I didn't want to do to my jewelry what they wanted me to do. So I decided, you know, as growing up in Asheville and as being an African American to operate in this country, we have to learn to do a lot of things on our own. And then I met Duncan Shibaudi, who's a photographer, and he does a lot of fashion fabs of fashion labs where he brings the artists, he brings the models, he brings the designers all together and they take pictures. Well, you know, I really hadn't thought of like I thought of photography but I really hadn't given that much thought to. He came by my studio and he liked my work. So he decided to do a fashion thing in my studio and he brought the model and I just kind of opened my mind up to the model wearing the jewelry where people can see the jewelry on the body and how it's going to lay. And I thought, well, I would like to do a fashion show. I would like to have a fashion show. But, you know, I had to kind of think about me, my personality, how I would do it. I didn't really want anything where I was going to drive me uptight, where everything had to be just so, all the lights and, you know, a big drama. I wanted to be relaxed and casual and sort of introduce the idea to Asheville that they can have fashion, they could do things, but it didn't have to be a big drama event. And I didn't realize until after I thought about it, I guess I sort of tying it into what I did as a librarian to bring the community into the library and planning programs and events. Because sometimes when I first started out in the art world, I would get mystified about how do you get people to come What do you do to attract them? So then I something said to me, so, well, Viola, why don't you just treat it like a book? What would you do if it was a book? I said, oh, I would have an event. I would do this. I would do that. Because we used to have a lot of family-oriented events in the library to bring them in. So I came up with this idea about chit-chat, where people could just talk to each other and talk to the model and find out, ask the model questions about the art, about the dress. And then I also thought, well, I don't want to do clothes. I I like clothes, but I didn't really want. So I thought, well, I could collaborate with another artist. They could do the clothes. I would do the jewelry. We would do the event together. That would help her. That would help me. And I found that when you did collaborations, you learned a lot from the other person because you have to lean into them and what they bring to the table they have to lean into you and what you're bringing to the table. And then you come up with a nice mix. And so I collaborated with this artist and she brought the clothes. And the first one I think was called leaves because people come to Astra to see the leaves. That's what Astra has, the gift of leaves. And I love leaves. So we did that. She had all the clothes. It was the fall colors. And then I matched the jewelry up to her clothes. And we had food. We took intermission. People walked around, looked at the jewelry and the clothes, asked questions. We talked. And it was just a nice small group. I think we might have started out like 25, 30 people. And each time it grew. And each time I did it with a different artist. That was a really fun thing. People loved it. It was great. I haven't done one since the pandemic because right. I just can't just bring people together. You know, I just exactly not want to
0: do that. Yeah, well, that was my next question. I'm guessing that it, based on the story, it sounded like it was all pre-COVID and now we're sort of all coming out of this. So it's, the future is a little uncertain about when the next one is. But what a wonderful approach to promoting the work and marketing the work and, and bringing people together in a very approachable, accessible Way. Very friendly and fun versus serious.
2: People, they really loved it. They loved it. We had lots of pictures. They loved the food. They loved just talking to each other, walking Mm. around. So it was good to get people to come out. and And then when COVID happened, it was like, oh, what do I do now?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so Viola, you ended up coming back home. You grew up in Asheville, then you headed for the big city. You had a whole life as a librarian. Then you retired from being a librarian. You went back to school to study art, and you ended up back in Asheville. What was that like for you coming back home?
2: Well, I think I always knew I would come back home, even when I first left. I really was sad to leave my parents here. But during those times, in order for us to have jobs, You had to leave because they just didn't have jobs. The kind of job I wanted, they just didn't have it here in Asheville, or you didn't have the opportunity to get it. So my mother was sick. Was number one. I had to come back home. I mean, I did a lot of things to try to manage her care from Philadelphia, but it was very difficult. So I decided I was going to come back home, uh, where she was. And it was difficult because Asheville being small, I was used to a big city. You could just Think of ideas, or you want to do this, you could just jump up and go over and do it. Or you could go shop, but it wasn't always here. I had to get a lot of things, order things through the mail and things like that to get things. So that was difficult. You know, I had to get used to that. And then I grew to love Asheville again. I think when I first came back, I still thought of Asheville as though the way it was when I grew up during A score years, the segregation years. And so I really didn't like Asheville. And so when I would be able to school and the kids would say, well, Viola, where are you from? So I said, oh, I'm from Asheville. Oh, Asheville, they are going on about Asheville. I said, Asheville, they like Asheville. I got to take another look at Asheville. Why do they like Asheville so much? And then I fell in back in love with Asheville, being here, small, and even being there was a small community. My daughter, she was still in Philly. And she had gotten married. She had a baby, and so I said, "Well, I have to be here, so y'all have to come too." So I went to Philly and packed them all up. They didn't have a say, so they had to move to Asheville. <laughs> Mama says, <laughs> "My grand, had, my grandson had to be near my grandson." So
0: that's right, as it should be, as it mm-hmm. should be. So, what year was it when you landed back in Asheville?
2: Well, I really, I remarried. In 2000. And then I actually I moved back here in 2001.
0: Okay. And then when did you graduate with your art degree?
2: 2003, I think.
0: Okay. Okay. And then when did you end up at Pink Dog?
2: I think I ended up at Pink Dog like around 9 or 10, 2009 or 10, somewhere around in there. So it was that period where I wanted to have my own studio. I mean, I bought a building. My mother passed in 2003, and so she made me promise before she died that I would not spend up any other money for a whole year. I had to wait a whole year, and I promised her that that's what I would do. And then after that year, I bought that house over on Broad Street. It's a little tiny house, and I renovated. But I got so tired renovating. I knew all about renovating because I had other properties that I had renovated before But it just sucked up so much of my blood, my energy, that I didn't have any time for art. And I wanted to be an artist. So I decided we have to close this shop up. I'm going down to the River Arts District. Find me a space down there and get it going. But I wanted it. It took a lot to get it going. I would say, oh, I'm going to have my business. I'm going to have my business. And so one of my friends said, well, you know, you always say you're going to have your business, but you're not doing it. So she had a friend there that was with her. And so she said, well, what's holding you back? And so I told her, I said, you know, it just seems so overwhelming to get it going. So she said, well, just take one step at a time, one piece of it and put that in place. then another." And that's what I did. I just started looking at one piece. I practiced. I decided on my medium. I practiced it. I got a few pieces going. Then once I had a, like a little collection, then I went to find the place. I shared a little space in the Glass Studio. That was my first year, and after that, it was clear sailing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, starting a business is challenging for anyone, and you know artists are sometimes loath to deal with business. How were you feeling about becoming an entrepreneur and a small business owner? Because that's essentially what you were taking on.
2: Well, I knew about entrepreneurship because when I was in Philadelphia, I had gotten all these properties. I worked two jobs and I saved all my money from the second job because I realized that one day I was going to get old and was going to be in the run around to help me. So I better get busy and work on that. So then I started buying properties and renovating them and having renters come in and managing them. And that's a job right there, properties and renters. Because you can have good renters, but you're still going to have a problem with them no matter what. They may keep your property great and they can pay on time, but there's always going to be some issues that you're going to have to deal drama, with. Drama, yes. So when I came here and I started thinking about the art and getting that business together, I went to Mountain Biz Work and did a plan, a business plan. And I had a few pieces and I brought it there. So I learned a lot from doing that time management. You can plan so much, but that time thing, it can eat away, you know, at you. You don't get your projects and stuff together and looking at it in terms of making money with it.
0: So what advice would you give other artists going into business for the first time?
2: I would say planning. I think mm-hmm. I learned that being a librarian and working in the big city and working with a big library system, you had to have a lot of plans in place and especially in teaching other people, you have to have plans. So the more you can have plans in place, you're still going to have hiccups, but the smoother it's going to be.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, planning, I mean, that's great advice, right? Because I feel like sometimes whether you're an artist or just an entrepreneur, we get excited about what we want to do, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. we jump before looking just how high <laughs> we've
2: know. decided
0: to jump, you know?
2: So that's your planning and time management.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Time management, time management. That's key. And, and knowing the numbers, right? I mean, how many artists. I know nobody likes dealing with taxes. Nobody likes dealing with the pennies, but you've got to manage those numbers.
2: And I, I guess just being a librarian, I used to read books on people who did how a business and what they went through. And I read this one book. It's, it's really almost convinced me not to even want to do a business because she, she had just gotten herself down into a quagmire of stuff, all tanglements and everything. But In the end, she finally worked through all of that and came out in the clear and found direction. So Mm. it can get like that. Even when you do all the right things, sometimes things happen.
0: That's right. Well, yeah, you could do everything perfectly and everything's going swimmingly, and then a pandemic hits.
2: And it still can go bad. So Right, right, right. Just got to keep working at it and keep trying. So when you
0: came back to Asheville... How was it different? I mean, as an African American who grew up there in a segregated South during some of the toughest times, whether it's Jim Crow or or any number of things going on, coming back, you were hearing from folks, you know, oh, Asheville's great, and you should go to Asheville, and you're shocked, you're surprised, you're like, not the Asheville I knew. <laughs> what? Wait. So, what was that like coming back? How was it different?
2: I always did come back holidays, summers. I stayed with my parents. But I didn't really go out much because my mother she liked for you to spend all your time where She considered that this was her time, and so we <laughs> couldn't go out and give our time to other people. We had to, <laughs> I had to stay home and be with, her, which I really didn't mind. But when I came back, besides the care of her, because you know that took some time, mm. you know you still had to get out and get to know people again. So I had to join some organizations and church because. Church was a big part of my life when I grew up here. My parents were all a part of the church. So so the key to me, for me, was being in organizations. I was part of the links. Then I was a Delta. There's my sorority. So I did those kinds of things and doing things out into the community. We gave a lot of time. I volunteered at the ABCCM, worked in the kitchen. I loved doing that. So things like that, where you become part of the community and you're giving back to the community, really helps.
0: So like a re-socialization coming back, because it's a new place, right? It's new people, yes, new it's, places. It's really, new- it's really
2: all new. It's not the right. same Asheville. It's a different astral. Even the stores are different. I mean, it could be the same building. I remember going into Barmarche as a little kid and actually seeing the the store, uh, shopping in the store for the first time. Even Lexington Avenue was not the same, you know, where all the farmers came in and shopped down on Lexington Avenue. It was still not the same. So, Asheville was just a little bit more cosmopolitan than when I grew up here.
0: Well, as an African-American artist in Asheville – what is the community like for African-American artists in Asheville? Is it a small community, large community? Do you come together? Like Talk about that for a bit.
2: Well, we know one another. There may be some here working that I don't know. But for instance, I think it was last year, or maybe it was two years ago, we did a show at the art center called Astral through my brown eyes. And Mm. so it's all African American artists. So we've got to know one another that way. And then when we're in exhibitions, mostly it's all Black artists. Mm. I have never been in an exhibition that was mixed. Interesting. Because we are usually zero out, we are blocked out, we're not invited in. And that's the reason why I came up with my own chit chat fashion show because. I won't say it's like that in every case, but I would say it's like that in most cases. But when you deal with the public, you deal with them from an artist's point of view, not that you're a black African-American artist or whatever, because it's all different kind of people (laughs) that's buying your work. And most of the time, it's white Americans who are buying your work.
0: Well, that's interesting what you were saying, though, in terms of some of the exhibitions there are curated primarily around white artists, and black artists aren't invited in. Therefore, black artists need to sort of curate their own shows and exhibitions out of necessity. I find that really interesting because, at least in my experience, I would like to believe art communities are more integrated than that.
2: Well, depends on the community.
0: Yeah, right.
2: This is a smaller community.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So I don't know. Even before I got into art is good. I used to go to Atlanta and I used to go to the places where they had art and just look around. And so I'm sure they had mixed artists there. It was like a big warehouse and they had a lot of painters and then sculptors.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, what about Grind? How does Grind play into the artist community there and at the River Arts District?
2: From what I can tell, I mean, seems to do fine because they have a mixture of everybody who goes in and participates or sits outside or goes in to buy the coffee or whatever they're selling there. I have seen more black artists there. They've had like different pop-up kind of events. And I've seen other black artists. They actually bring more black artists to the plate down in the River Arts District, which I really like because before, it just just a few of me and Joseph and Jenny Pickens. She would come in, although she does dolls now. But she's been involved you know, in the arts scene down in the River Arts. And then there's Cleaster. Even though she doesn't have a studio down there, she does events and she shows her work. There are a few of us that's down there. And I heard that they were going to have some type of building. I think Ashville owns the site some kind of group where they're going to try to help black artists have a place and can have a jumping off point.
0: Well, what about Marquis? I mean, Marquis feels like a, it's, I mean, it's a brand new space for artists and you're exhibiting there as well, right? Do you feel like Marquee can help drive some of that change that we're talking about and aspiring to?
2: I think they can. A lot of artists is money and being able to get the space. Yes. For the artwork. And like I said before, if they work as a group, Black artists got together as a group, and they all pull their money into a special place, and then they can divide up the space, and each one can have a space, that could work. I probably had the advantage because I worked early in my life and saved money and managed Mm -hmm. money better, and Mm -hmm. so I had money to devote to a space Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. art, and so I had kind of planned it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But when you're just starting out, you're young and, you know, you start being an artist, you may not foresee all of those things. You know, first you have to get your art together first. That takes a bit. And then now you've got to find a space. What platform are you going to promote your art? Everybody has to find that platform that's good for them. Some people can have a platform and just be online. And they can make that work. I don't think I'm that great of an online person. I have to have a platform, and then maybe I can dip and dab with online. But some mm-hmm. people can make online work with them quite well.
0: Well, for people listening who want to find your work online, where would they find you, Viola?
2: I'll usually direct people to Instagram. I have mm-hmm. more variety. Anytime I do anything new, I always put it on the Instagram. Zenobia Studio on Instagram, and it's public. <sighs> But I mean I have Facebook. I have another one called Spells Viola on Instagram. I mean I have several things on online, but Instagram is where I usually tell people to go. Zenobia Studio on Instagram. Spell that for us, please. Zenobia is my mother's name. Z is in Zebra. E-N-O B is in baby I A.
0: What a rightful and beautiful honor to name your brand and name your company after your mother, because without her, we wouldn't have you. And Viola Spells, you are a gift to us today. We thank you so much for coming on here to Artsville and telling us your story.
2: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It was fun.
0: (laughs) Yay. Well, that's what we wanted. And your work is beautiful and stunning. And I'm not going to if my wife hears this, uh, I guess the secret's out, but I'm totally buying my wife some of your work. Oh, I, 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 I Yeah, yeah, I can't Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's going to be a good gift for her coming up. And I recommend that to anybody to, to check out your work because it is absolutely stunning. Viola Spells, thank you so much for coming on to Artsville. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville. Hartsville feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah. Hartsville from Asheville.